Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Me Undies. I have lots of kinds of underwear in my drawer, but I have to tell you that my favorite kind of underwear is me undies. I love them so much, and Colette, my wife, is so jealous of them that when Mother's Day came up this year and she wanted a variety of different gifts for Mother's Day, one of the things she wanted was some me undies underwear and also their lounge pants. I have a pair of me undies lounge pants, and Colette deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of Me Undies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun, expressive prints, and they come in sizes extra small to 4XL, guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody. And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh so comfy, making it ideal for all day wear. MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash HPST. That's MeUndies.com slash HPST for 20% off plus free shipping. MeUndies. Comfort from the outside in. Hey, Vanessa, Casper, Ariana. Hi, Vanessa and Casper. Hi, Casper, Ariana and Vanessa. Dear Vanessa, Casper, Ariana, and everyone who helps make this podcast possible. I'm Vanessa Zoltan, and this is an Owl Post edition of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Casper is home so sick today. He sounded absolutely pathetic. But we just thought, what a great excuse for my co-hosts to be all of you. All of you are certainly better than that guy, Casper. So we are going to use today to respond to several of our OWL posts that we've gotten over the last couple of months. And we have gotten several responding to the hearing surrounded Brett Kavanaugh's nomination and confirmation onto the Supreme Court. And so we're going to be playing several of those voicemails. 
So now is the time where I am going to offer a trigger warning for the first part of this episode. We are going to be talking about some really difficult things. And so please take care of yourself and take care of whoever it is that you might be listening with because we are going to be talking about some tough topics. In the second half of the episode, I will be joined by Dr. Lynn Gerber, and we are going to talk about witchy stuff. So paganism and Wiccan and what it means to be a witch or wizard and the history of that. And so I'm really excited and come back for that conversation if you feel like you should skip this first bit. We usually start an episode with an opening story on a theme, and lucky us, our favorite professor and reverend, Dr. Stephanie Paulsell, gave a sermon on the Kavanaugh hearings just a couple of weeks ago at Memorial Church. We're just going to play the first five minutes, but if you'd like to hear the rest of it, go to the Memorial Church website and you can listen to the whole thing. My mother was a runner before the days of fancy running shoes and weekend road races. When I was a kid, she would lace up a pair of those thin-soled kids and run around our neighborhood after supper in the evenings. None of my friends' mothers did this. It was the late 60s, early 70s, and jogging was just beginning to become popular in the United States. My mother was an unusual sight, running around our neighborhood, graceful and fleet. She is always delighted in the strength of her body, always the first one into the waves when we went to the ocean, always the one to accumulate the most laps when we went to the pool. Even now, in her 80s, she is limber and active, although she walks now instead of running. I imagine she ran during my childhood because it made her feel good. I expect it was also a relief to get away from family life a bit, to enjoy a little solitude. I don't remember her talking with me about why she ran, but I do remember my mother telling me that when she ran through our neighborhood, she always had an escape plan in mind. She would think about which houses she could run to, who might answer the door, who might be sitting in their backyard and hear her call for help, if anyone threatened her or followed her or pulled up alongside her in a car. My mother ran to enjoy a little peace and quiet, but the cost of that peace and quiet was a certain vulnerability and a mind that couldn't afford to be anything but alert and watchful. It's not that our neighborhood was particularly dangerous. The truth is there is no neighborhood where women don't have to make calculations about our vulnerability as we run or walk or push a baby stroller. Depending on our own experiences and the experiences of people we know, The threat of sexual violence might vibrate at the front of our minds or lie dormant in the back, nearly indiscernible. But it doesn't take much to bring it forward because awareness of that threat is to some degree always there for women. Of course, it's not only girls and women who experience sexual violence. People of all genders do. 
but women do seem to be expected to understand vulnerability to sexual violence as a normal part of being female and to arrange our lives accordingly. Even now, in the Me Too era, sexual harassment and abuse remain part of growing up, part of being in school, part of going to church, part of dating, part of going to parties, part of working, part of walking alone, part of jogging alone, part of life. Indeed, the threat of sexual violence is so much a part of life for women that it often goes unspoken. We do pass on from mother to daughter, sister to sister, friend to friend, the kind of information my mom passed to me. Have an escape plan when you're out by yourself. Yell fire instead of help. Bring a canister of mace with you or a really loud whistle. Make sure your car is in working order. Lock your doors. Don't speed when you're driving alone so you won't get pulled over. Women share this kind of practical wisdom all the time. What we don't talk about so much is how sexual violence shapes our lives, our careers, our relationships, our engagement with the world. We don't talk about what we didn't do where we didn't go, what we didn't achieve because of sexual violence or the risk of it. We just fold those absences into our lives. The Me Too movement, the Kavanaugh hearings, and all that has flown from them have begun to unfold those absences, though, and spread them out on the table of our society for all to see. Like Professor Anita Hill before her, Professor Christine Blasey Ford, with nothing to gain and a lot to lose, testified with great dignity about how sexual aggression and violence had impacted her life. An academically gifted 15-year-old girl began to struggle in school. An outgoing athlete began to experience anxiety and depression. Decades later, Professor Ford was still trying to come to terms with her experience in therapy. 36 years later, she can still recall the laughter of her assailants, can still feel the panic and the pain. The sheer unfairness of this, the injustice of it, makes me tremble. To say nothing of the fact that Brett Kavanaugh was only days later seated on the Supreme Court, or that Professor Ford has had to live in hiding apart from her children, or that she was mocked by the President of the United States at a political rally. The laughter of the crowd in response is now indelible on my hippocampus. So it is interesting to find ourselves in Book 5 as the Kavanaugh hearings unfolded before us a couple of weeks ago, because I think we can see a lot of similarities between what happens in Order of the Phoenix and what has been happening with these hearings and the responses to them. It is acutely something in which one person is testifying to a horror that they were part of, and the institutions that be say, we will not take that into account. 
And sometimes we record these episodes, you know, weeks early when we can get into the studio. And so we haven't had the opportunity to be responding to current events. And so many things are happening so quickly these days. Just in the last couple of days, there was a shooting in a synagogue killing 11 people. There was a plane crash killing 150 people in Indonesia. We've caught the pipe bomber. It feels like an endless barrage of tragedies that are nearly impossible to keep up with. But we got so many voicemails and emails about the Kavanaugh hearings and the uncanniness of the timing of where we are in the Harry Potter books that we just wanted to make space for that in this episode. And I'll just say one more time, please consider this a trigger warning. We will be talking about sexual assault and sexual violence. This first voicemail is from Priyanka. Hi, Casper, Ariana, and Vanessa. I first read the Harry Potter series as a child, and I'm struck at how differently I relate to the text now, particularly to book five. When I was a freshman in college at Washington University in St. Louis, I was raped on the college campus. My assault was intensely traumatic, and I completely had a different sense of safety. I missed classes and meals because the only place I felt safe was in my bed. I chose to report, and that has been the biggest regret of my life. I cannot begin to express how traumatizing the reporting process was. The investigation was degrading, invalidating, and painful. One act of violence by a fraternity member was followed by many acts of violence throughout the reporting process by my own academic institution. After nine months of this investigation, my university did not find my rapist responsible. I was completely betrayed by a place that was supposed to protect and support me. In book four, Harry witnesses the terrible death of Cedric Diggory and the return of Lord Voldemort, a violent and traumatic moment in Harry's life. Throughout book five, we see the Ministry of Magic, an institution that is meant to keep the wizarding world safe, completely betray Harry. They do not believe him and subject him to additional trauma in many ways. There is a real violence the ministry inflicts upon Harry that reminds me of the violence and betrayal I experienced in my reporting process. I now read book five in an entirely new way, feeling Harry's pain through my own memories of institutional betrayal and invalidation. Recently, Christine Blasey Ford testified in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee and recounted her experience of assault by Brett Kavanaugh. Yesterday, Kavanaugh was confirmed to the Supreme Court. Our government is one of these institutions, ignoring the violence many of us experience and allowing perpetrators of violence to rise in power. Now, more than ever, I need and I value the project of treating Harry Potter as a sacred text. I expect in the days to come, we will need so much of the Order of the Phoenix and what it has to offer. Thank you, Casper, Ariana, and Vanessa. First of all, I'm so sorry that happened to you. WashU is also where I went to college, and I am absolutely ashamed and mortified that they did that um, and that they didn't take you seriously enough and that they continued to enact this violence on you by not believing you and taking you seriously in the way that you needed and deserved. I also want to thank you for your gorgeous invitation at the end, which is that a way to be sort of part of the order in these moments is to believe the people around us. As much as we can do damage to one another in these moments, we can also show tremendous compassion and care and courage 
So I want to thank you for your voicemail, for telling this story, and for giving another example of why people don't report. I'm really tired of that line of criticism against any victim of sexual assault. Why didn't you report it sooner? You are giving a frighteningly good example of why it is that so many people feel as though they can't report the crimes that have been committed against them. This next voicemail is from Mariana Hernandez. Hi, Vanessa and Casper. I have been devouring your podcast, and I'm so happy to have finally caught up. As I was trying to catch up, I noticed that you had started reading book five, which is probably the book I have the most complicated feelings about. My thinking has changed so much about this book since I read it the first time, and I've reread it, and I've been thinking about it with you. And in particular, I wanted to talk about the topic of anger. Several people have mentioned that they found Harry to be irritating um, and angsty and, you know, dramatic in all the ways that teenagers were and dismissed his anger for those reasons. And I was definitely a person who did that. But particularly since this election, um, and probably before then, I've come to realize that um, I am so angry all the time, just like Harry says that he is. And I'm not a person who's being individually targeted by the policies, by the government, um, although it feels like I am as a woman as a person of color, as a daughter of immigrants. And so I think, yes, we should be reading his reaction through the lens of PTSD and thinking that maybe like this is a result of that trauma, but there doesn't have to be just one cause of trauma, just every day experiencing, existing in a world in which you're being persecuted you have a right to be angry. And I am a person who tries to use my anger in constructive ways, but I think that choosing anger over despondency is in and of itself a productive use of anger, even if we're not ready or at the point or have the skills or understand the next step. So I just wanted to share that and thank you. Um, thanks. Mariana, thank you so much for that voicemail. These days, it seems to me that anger is actually one of the only rational ways to be in the world. And I think that it is possible that anger can be like our friend Matt Potts said about grief, a position that we have toward the world. I think that as long as we stay angry, it is a way to witness that something is unjust And Mariana, I also think that just recently we saw something that you were talking about. We do spend a lot of time talking about, of course, Sirius behaves this way. Look at how he was treated. Of course, Harry is behaving this way. Look at the traumas he survived. But we see something really interesting in Molly, right? Molly hasn't experienced any traumas, but Molly is 
terrified. And the reason she's terrified is because she sees the world as it is and she has something to lose. And so I think you're exactly right. We don't need to have been traumatized through some great horrific event. We can just be paying attention and have that be our trauma. And that's not to take away from people who go through really extreme forms of suffering, but to be alive right now in this moment, the way that the world is presenting itself is to be scared and is to be angry. And the thing that I will say to you, Mariana, and to everybody as we move away from this very intense and important topic onto lighter notes is that we can still, even if we are living in a position of grief or anger, find inspiration in the beautiful moments, that there is nothing wrong with that. In the beautiful call-outs of people saying, I believe Dr. Ford, in the bravery that Dr. Ford exemplified in standing up and literally speaking truth to power, in the strength of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who is 85 years old and who will sit on that bench and fight for us, In the acts of bravery and kindness that we all exhibit to one another, it is not enough yet to be making the kinds of changes that we want to hear, but I think that we should allow ourselves to find joy in them and to be inspired by them, and I am grateful to you. So thank you for your anger, and I join you in it. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Me Undies. I have lots of kinds of underwear in my drawer, but I have to tell you that my favorite kind of underwear is me undies. I love them so much, and Colette, my wife, is so jealous of them that when Mother's Day came up this year and she wanted a variety of different gifts for Mother's Day, one of the things she wanted was some me undies underwear and also their lounge pants. I have a pair of me undies lounge pants, and Colette deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of me undies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun, expressive prints, and they come in sizes extra small to 4X L, guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody. And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh so comfy, making it ideal for all day wear. MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash HPST. That's MeUndies.com slash HPST for 20% off plus free shipping. Me Undies, comfort from the outside in. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. 
And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. This next voicemail is from Ray, who we met in Minneapolis. I love meeting people. Hey, Vanessa, Casper, Ariana. I'm reflecting on Vanessa's comment that It is an act of compassion to call somebody what they want to be called from last week's episode on compassion. I have my own personal experience that resonates with that going by a name that I wasn't given. But I'm thinking about this in terms of Dumbledore calling Voldemort Tom Riddle when Voldemort has made it very clear that he rejects that name and does not want to be referred to as Tom Riddle. And specifically because I think Dumbledore believes that he treats Voldemort and Death Eaters with respect and compassion, though he is plotting their demise. And so this is a moment, whenever Dumbledore calls Voldemort Tom Riddle, that I'm like compelled to feel compassion or be compassionate to Voldemort, which is some disconcerting. But it's specifically... Because Harry then starts using Tom Riddle to refer to Voldemort, like, to be patronizing, like, to get at Voldemort. And so I've thought about names and identity a fair amount and the the complexity of just calling somebody what they want to be called as an act of respect um, comes when our values are not aligned. Like, do I respect a neo-Nazi's identity? And I think the most clarity I have on this, especially in reflecting Dumbledore calling Voldemort Tom Riddle, is that I think it's an act of violence and that it's contributing to the cycle of harm and violence that Dumbledore and Harry are saying that they are trying to like plot the demise of, right? that they're trying to get out of. I'm curious what you guys think. Thanks so much for this podcast and your work in the world. Thank you so much, Ray. I agree with you that it's an act of violence, but I think it is like a really savvy and strategic one. And if this is a way that Dumbledore can undermine a violent criminal through the use of his given name, like I agree with you. It is patronizing and it is not compassionate, but that is definitely not what Dumbledore is going for in this moment. I I understand your point that compassion begets compassion, but... I also think that there are times in which not acting compassionately is staying committed to truth. Just like a cult leader would say, call me God, I'd be like, no, we want to resist these things. But yeah, I agree with you that Dumbledore is not doing something that is a virtue in a lot of contexts. I just don't think calling Voldemort by his proper name is a virtue. This next voicemail is from Ashley, who was with us in Denver. And this is how we reward you for coming to our live shows. We include your voicemails. Hello, Casper, Vanessa, and Ariana. At the Denver live show, Casper mentioned his love of Advent. Advent is my favorite liturgical season, too. In fact, Christmas Eve is my favorite day of the whole year. 
When asked why, I've talked about the sacredness, the quiet anticipation that fills the night. I think it's magical. I tell people I love the waiting. However, recent life events have made it glaringly obvious that there is a significant flaw in my love of Advent. My husband and I have been trying to have a child for over a year and a half. This past May, we found out I was pregnant with twins, and in June, I miscarried them both. We were beyond devastated. We had just moved. No friends or family lived in the area. Our house was still in boxes, and the clearest thing I remember from the shock of the day was that we were out of milk and had to go to the store. We would never see the children whom we had been waiting so long for. The long waiting process, now painted with tragedy, began again. This led me to an important observation. When talking about Advent, I say I love the waiting, but that is only because I know the ending. I know that Christmas morning is coming. Without that knowledge, Christmas Eve is just another long, lonely, long, and dark night. In Harry Potter, the characters are often desperately waiting too, waiting to leave the Dursleys, waiting for exams, waiting to find a lead on the Horcruxes, waiting for a life without the threat of Voldemort. And in these moments of personal tragedy, I find the books and Advent to be especially comforting. They remind me that the waiting ends and that out of the darkness, there is light. So I'd like to bless the characters and anyone else who is waiting for something that seems unlikely to ever come. Our light in the darkness is indeed coming. Ashley, thank you so much for your voicemail. And I am so, so sorry about your miscarriage. That is just awful. And I bet that you have given a lot of other listeners comfort because I know that so many pregnancies end in miscarriage and it is something that we don't talk about. So thank you for sharing your story. And yeah, I think that there is a time and a place to trust in a happy ending. It is why I love romance novels. I love sitting down and opening a book and knowing what that there's going to be a beautiful happy ending at the end and that I'm going to be taken on a roller coaster between here and there, but I know that we are going to end well. I don't think it is a strategy for all things. I don't believe that the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I think we have to bend it toward our will, but I do think that we need moments in which we know the happy endings, and I'm so glad that Advent is that for you. And I also believe, to your point, that holding those stories helps sustain us through the dark times in order to maintain our strength to bend the arc of the universe toward our will. Our last voicemail for today is from Emma Fleming. Dear Vanessa, Casper, Ariana, and everyone who helps make this podcast possible, thank you all. I love Harry Potter. I'm wearing a Harry Potter t-shirt right now, but I'm actually not going to talk about Harry Potter. I'm going to talk about marginalia. I'm part of an intersectional feminist book club, and for our last meeting, we read one of my favorites, Orlando by Virginia Woolf. I originally read this book in college, and I bought my copy secondhand, so by the time it became mine, at least two other people had read and written in the book. And initially, I was very judgy of these people. I even crossed out some of their notes and replaced them with my own very English majory notes like Zeitgeist and capital R Romanticism. But reading it again, after you all had introduced me to the idea of marginalia as a sacred practice, I found myself invited to see not just what was written in the text as sacred, but also the writers in that text as sacred, including, in fact, my past self. I think reading a book that we've written in, again, gives us a snapshot of who we were when we were reading that book previously. 
and allows us to ponder how our past selves don't exist anymore and at the same time are thoroughly a part of who we are. Just like we would mark the height of a growing child on a doorframe, writing in a book again and again as we read it is evidence of our own spiritual growth. So thank you for introducing me to Marginalia as a sacred practice, and I want to bless the two previous owners of my copy of Orlando, and I'd like to bless my 20-year-old self, and invite anyone listening to bless their 20-year-old self too. May you be happy, may you be peaceful, may you be free from suffering. That voicemail includes one of my favorite sentences ever. I am part of an intersectional feminist book club. You've gotten exactly what we hoped for Marginalia. I think that that is exactly right. I do think you are reading the wrong Virginia Woolf novel again and again. I think that the correct one is Mrs. Dalloway. Stephanie Paulsell would say that the correct one is To the Lighthouse. But, you know, to each their own, I suppose. Good for you. But, yeah, I think that these are valid forms of writing, right? These are creative and radical acts that we are doing, and we are changing texts. And we are in conversation with people who have been dead. These are like magical, mystical things that we are doing by writing in books. And 400 years ago, only rich men got to write in the margins of books. And now we all get to, which is exciting. And thank you for all of those blessings. And I would like to bless my 20-year-old self because, boy, does she need it. Today, we are joined by Dr. Lynn Gerber, who is an independent scholar and formerly a visiting professor at Harvard Divinity School, where she came into our lives via Ariana Nettleman, who, Lynn, you and Ariana are working on an amazing project together. I'm really excited about it. It's pretty amazing. Can you tell us just a little bit about it? Yeah, it's a podcast about a church. It's about a gay church, a queer church. And in the 80s and the 90s, it was in the heart of the AIDS crisis. And part of what they did as part of their ministry was record all of their worship services. And Ariana and I are working together to try and tell that story through sound using all those audio archives. I'm so excited. I've heard clips of it, and I can't get Ariana to shut up about it. And I'm just (laughs) so excited to hear this project as it comes out. And it'll be coming out in a really long time from now because you guys are working so hard on making something so spectacular. Exactly. That's exactly what's going to happen. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We basically have asked you to join us because my understanding is that you have some background in goddess culture, Wicca, neo-paganism. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what that is and your history with it. Sure, I will try and do that. So in answering the question, though, I'm going to bracket myself as a professor or a scholar of religion and just talk about my experience because it's easier to do that um, than to try and have a real sophisticated intellectual take on it. But so I'm a person who sort of came of age in the late 80s, early 90s, and was very affected by feminism and women's studies and feminist studies in religion. And it was a little bit before sort of like queer theory took over and a different generation of women of color um, participated in feminist space. So it was a particular moment that was our current moment has real roots in, but it's quite different than it is now. And so when I was coming up, witches and witchcraft had a very particular place in the sort of feminist imaginary, a certain kind of feminist imaginary. 
And part of it was as a way of envisioning the seeds of an alternative women-oriented spiritual life and community life and maybe a way of organizing society or at least small groups of people. There's also real interest in witchcraft and witch trials in Europe historically, in part as a way to understand women's oppression and the depths and the virulence of misogyny in Western European culture. And a lot of feminist scholars and historians and practitioners looked to that history in Europe and the United States as a way to try and understand women's oppression and particularly women's the oppression of women's power, there was this feeling that there was something about the figure of the witch and the spiritual practices of witchcraft, whether real or imagined, that said something about women's power. And it was partly because of what it suggested about women's power that it attracted the ire of the men who wanted to bring the women down or the church that wanted to kill the pagans. So my personal involvement had a number of different dimensions. I certainly like dabbled in some of the Wiccan pagan communities. I went to rituals that Starhawk ran and I went to... um, You actually hung out with Starhawk? Well, I wouldn't hang out would be a strong word, but like in the same room with her doing the spiral dance with her. Yeah, that totally happened. Yeah. Wait, can you just tell our listeners who Starhawk is? So Starhawk is a feminist activist witch. She's a very important person in the feminist rethinking of paganism. And she was really well known, at least in the circles I traveled in. She was she formed something called the Reclaiming Collective, which was sort of like a laboratory of feminist Wicca. And she led these spiral dance rituals. I mean, in my memory, it would be a room of like hundreds of people in this organized chaos of a ritual dance that was done as a sort of raising of energy for healing the planet kind of ritual. I mean, she's basically the like Bono of Wicca. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, I wasn't a Bono fan, so I can't really quite make the parallel. But she was, I mean, she was the thing. I mean, she was, she, and she articulated something that was really powerful for a certain generation of women about trying to understand power. One of her really big distinctions, I remember her writing about, I can't remember which book it was, I think it was Dancing in the Dark, about the difference between power over and power from within, to both at the same time generate power and resist power, which I think was confusing to people, because if we are resisting the power, say, of the patriarchy coming in and tearing women down, the only way to do that is by building power, but then aren't we, by definition, doing the oppressive thing of building power? And her distinction of saying, you know, there's a real difference between generating a power, an internal power from within versus a power that you would exercise over a person was something It was certainly resonant for me at that stage in my life and I think was resonant for a lot of people. Lynn, you've done an amazing job of explaining sort of the why, right, why people were drawn to this movement. But I'm wondering the how of it. What does it mean once you are practicing these practices? For me, it looked a number of different ways. One, it was a very personal way of sort of a solitary practice of meditation and trying to be more attuned to the earth and the turning of seasons. I was a person who was raised in the suburbs to be not at all attentive to the natural world around me. So part of my experience with that was learning about herbal medicine or going on 
herb walks with pagany herb healer type people and learning about what was in season at different times or how to attend to the solstice and the equinox. So when I was part of that world, I participated in rituals at all of those four cross points, the equinoxes and the solstices, in part because I had friends that just ran rituals like that. That's just what they did. So I went and hung out at their solstice events, and they became real opportunities for me to pay attention to the movement of time, the changing of seasons, what's happening with plants and the world and the earth and the time and the light. And to use that movement as a way to understand my own sort of internal tides. You know, when I was young, I had hopes about the alignments of the seasons with internal life. I now find them to be profoundly at odds. <laughs> and like, they're like broken clocks. They're right twice a day. But um, for the most part, my internal life and the external world are at a counter tempo rather than in sync with each other. But I had hopes for that then, that they would find themselves in a certain kind of sync. So it looked like personal practice. It looked like big gatherings that were gatherings of friends and parties on these days. And these parties had a ritual aspect to it. So like at the solstice parties, I went to a friend, a woman who's still a friend. Her name is Amy. She's a tarot card reader. She would lead these rituals and she had a developed sort of liturgy that involved the burnings of things and it involved hidden tarot cards and finding them and getting card readings. I can't remember all of the details of it. And it involved like a nephew of hers who always brought to the potluck tuna fish sandwiches in hot dog buns. He brought them every time for years and years. Um, It was as much part of the ritual as like pulling your tarot card from the deck and having Amy tell you what it meant for the solstice. And then it also meant in part going to workshops and conferences and events where you would meet people who were advanced practitioners, or even sometimes like go to their homes and stay in their homes for the weekend and participate in rituals about various kinds of things. Um, I remember I used to go, there's this woman herbalist named Susan Weed, who uh, she's a feminist herbalist. She lives in Woodstock, New York. At least she did. I I mean, it's been years, but um, she used to do these Halloween rituals. And I remember going to her house for the weekends with like, you know, 50 women camping out on her land, just singing songs about witches and like, I think there were fires involved and meditations involved. I was a very bad meditator, but a lot of that kind of thing. So this is not something that is like part of your current spiritual practice, but I'm wondering how it's impacted you or what you think you've sort of taken with you from it all these years later since you've stopped practicing. One thing that I really keep with it, and this is intellectual and spiritual, is the kind of sense of possibility that that space gave, that it opened up room for something beyond the history I had learned, the religion I had learned, the um, ritual practice I had learned, and that there was space for more. And that impulse of finding space for more and of taking a certain kind of authority and claiming it. I mean, there's so much about claiming, right? Starhawk's group is the reclaiming collective, like the power of claiming that possibility and insisting on trying to manifest it is something that is still really, really valuable to me, even if it doesn't take quite the form of an interest in pagan practice as it's currently practiced. There's something so profoundly still moving and liberating and relieving to me of that possibility and of the courage of people claiming that possibility that um, I think follows me, like I said, both spiritually and intellectually. I think that my intellectual work 
certainly has its roots there and certainly in roots in that possibility and in that feminist impulse of saying we're going to claim a history that people say isn't important. And I was just thinking, I was like, God, the fact that you are no longer practicing situates you so well to be the expert on this podcast about it because Casper is a no longer practicing Anglican. I am a non-practicing Jew. When we had Sejal Patel on, she's a non-practicing Hindu. So your expertise is completely on brand for our podcast. Well, I'm also a non-practicing Jew, so I'm a non-practicing, I'm non-practicing everything I've practiced. (laughs) So I know that you're not a Harry Potter reader, which is an acceptable, although lamentable choice to have made with your life. But I'm wondering what your perception is of the like witchiness of the Harry Potter books. Well, I mean, it reminds me of the witchy books that struck my imagination. Like in my day, it was like Mists of Avalon. There's a lot historically that I would take very great issue with. But as an imaginative project, as a a space to cultivate wonder and to cultivate not just wonder, but to cultivate the space where it's okay to cultivate wonder, where it's a legitimate, important thing that people should be doing. It seems similar to me to what was just earlier versions of that in my day. It just was in a very different scale and a little bit of a different political set of intentions. But it strikes me as similar. And, you know, I have nieces, like my niece, the degree to which that kind of magic captures her sense of possibility. It's what has allowed her and me and my version of it to dream out of what we were told was possible. That strikes me as profoundly important and familiar. Well, Lynn, thank you so much for joining us. We're so excited for all of the work that you're doing and are so grateful to you for beginning this conversation with us. I know that we have a lot more to learn. Oh, yeah. I'm so happy. And I hope that you find really interesting practitioners who know a lot more about this than I do. And it's a pleasure, pleasure, pleasure to be engaged. To play us out today, one of our listeners sent us this incredible song. So thank you to Daniel Cooper for sending us the Luna Lovegood song. You can find him on Spotify and Apple Music. I think they think I'm a bit odd, you know. But I'm sure that I'll get by. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And we've started a Patreon. Go support us there. Leave us a review on iTunes. Send us a voicemail. Boy, are we bossy. Next week, we will be reading Chapter 11, The Sorting Hat's new song through the theme of dread. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Ariana Nettleman, the very sick and pathetic Casper Turkile, and me, Vanessa Zoltan. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we're part of the Panoply Network. A big thank you this week to Dr. Lynn Gerber, to this week's voicemails, and to Julia Argy, Bridget Goggin, and Stephanie Paulsell. Casper, feel better. We love you and miss you. Talk to you all next week. When you face the darkness, don't forget Baby, baby.
sing you a little song that we sang at witch camp one year if i can remember it it went something like oh who were the witches and where did they come from maybe your great great grandmother was one witches were done something wise women they say and there's a little witch in every woman today this week's episode of harry potter and the sacred text is brought to you by redfin let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimold Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.